Well, welcome to Coffee and Poets. We're here on September 21st, the Equinox, here in Sacramento. I'm Bob Stanley, and I have a special guest today, Dr. Andy Jones. Andy is a, a writer, a professor, a radio host, devoted husband and father, and he's also just recently been named the Poet Laureate of Davis. So we're going to talk a little bit. I'm going to ask him some questions about his plans for that and how that feels Give him a chance to read some poems. We'll talk here a little bit about his process of writing, kind of why poetry and what makes poetry important in his life and in the lives of those around him. So, uh, welcome. Thank you, Bob, for having me. It's interesting to be on this side of the mic. As you alluded to, I've hosted a, a radio show where I interview poets, including yourself and others here in the room, for almost a decade and a half now. And as a result, I'm good at putting other people on the spot but have become less self-reflective because I haven't been asked questions by hard-hitting reporters such as yourself. So now I've been girding myself and readying myself for those questions. We'll see where this goes. Well, I'll just have to interrupt you then. As poets, we may be highly elusive and we may go in directions that are not logical or uh, helpful to listeners. See if that happens. So elusive or allusive? Well, both. I plan to be elusive with an E, and then uh, you, with your learning, are probably going to make many illusions that will send people at least to Wikipedia if they're listening at home. Okay, well, um, let, me, let me start with the, uh, the Poet Laureate, your naming as Poet Laureate, third Poet Laureate of Davis, I believe. That's right. Our first was Allegra Silberstein, our first ever Poet Laureate. She served for two years, and then most recently, Yves West-Bessier, served for two years, and so I'm the third Poet Laureate of the City of Davis. Okay, and a wonderful choice. I think a very logical and uh, emotional and logical choice, so that's good. Right, and, and I think it was uh, a choice where people said, uh, well, we've chosen Allegra, we've chosen Eve, uh, who, who's left? Who's <laughs> <laughs> now, now, there's many great poets in Davis, as you the know. That's true, and I've, I've had them all read at my, my series. But it takes a certain kind of uh, activism to be the Poet Laureate, and certainly Eve and especially Allegra had that, and, uh, and that's the way that, that people think of me, uh, if they do, with regard to the poetry world, and that is uh, how much work I've done to try to promote other people's works, books, enterprises, projects when it comes to poetry. So what are, what are some plans? What are some things that you'd like to do uh, over the next year or two as you move into your next phase as Poet Laureate? When people ask me that and they don't know anything about me, I say, well, you know, primarily two things. I think I'll host a radio show on poetry and, say, technology, and then I'll run a, a, a reading series in an art gallery. They say, oh, that sounds ambitious. I don't know if you'll be able to do all that. And I say, yeah, I don't know either. And then I walk away self-satisfied knowing that I, I do both of those things already, as you know, Bob, and have for years. So I've, I've come up with three new things that I'm going to try to do as Poet Laureate. One is I'm going to bring poetry to our city council meetings. It's our city council that uh, confirmed me after the advice of our arts committee. City council members, like any politicians, they have to be careful. They have to um, be cognizant of the needs and the peccadilloes of a great number of constituencies. And they have to be careful what they say. And, and a poet has almost the opposite sort of obligation. That a, a poet, as someone once said, should uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfort. So if I find all these people who are set in their opinions or who are not willing to take on the tough issues, 
I could march in there as a poet and offer them something uh, surprising or assertive or self-contradictory and let that sit with them as they go about their, their bureaucratic work. So uh, when I was elevated to Poet Laureate, I read a, a well-received but also uh, politically uh, radical and inflammatory poem. And I, I was thinking, um, you know, the, the city council meetings, if anyone's going to watch them at all, they need more of that. And so I, I proposed to our mayor pro tem just this morning that we have me come in once a month, once every other month, and, uh, and read a poem on some of the topics that will be addressed at that uh, particular city council meeting. And as someone who follows the Davis Enterprise and Davis politics, um, there's probably enough stuff there for me to uh, comment on or mock. So you'll be writing, writing pieces for it, writing, uh, not using other poets, but um, writing your own pieces and bringing them in. I'd, I'd be writing my own pieces. And I'm at the point in my career now where if you, if you give me an hour, a topic, then I, I can come up with something. Okay. You, you might remember, Bob, we were at a, a conference at the Sacramento Poetry Center and uh, we were told to write something, I don't know what, but I wrote this poem about the Washington Monument that is going to appear in my, my next book. And, I, and it's something that if you reflect on long enough in your, your personal life, if someone says, here, write on this, sometimes that's all you need. And so um, that's something that I think I can do on command. And a lot of people have noticed that the quality of the poems that I write that I work on and revise for months, maybe years, it's not that much different from the, the poems that I write over the course of that hour. And so, you know, as, as that, you know, if we stipulate that, then why not have me write occasional poems on the spot and then present them to the city council meetings? So, so you're we'll kind see. of in the camp of maybe first thought, best thought to some degree? Well... I was going to ask you about that. I spend a lot of time thinking. And so I, I do revise... But, you know, um, having read as much as I do and having hosted as many poetry readings as I have, and, and I think you and I have, uh, are probably somewhere in the, about the same number of poetry readings that we've hosted over the last 10 or 15 years, you have a lot of echoes of, of good writers. Those are the ones you try to remember in your head. And, and those echoes can uh, appear or shape or help you make a better decision than the decision you might have made otherwise. When I hear first thought, best thought, I think of that in the, the beat generation sense of writing radical, wide-eyed poetry that is meant to be as uh, inflammatory and kind of, oh, I don't know, almost um, anarchic, right? Rather than something that is, as, as Wordsworth says, uh, where you, you have a moment of reflection, right? You've got these emotions you've been encountering all day, and then you sit back and have a moment of reflection. And I think that um, often with the help of substances of various sorts, the beat poets and those who have followed them uh, try to get as much down on the page as possible. We think of uh, Kerouac writing on the road on a, on a um, continuous sheet of butcher paper, or... Uh, the incantatory energy and momentum of um, something like Howl by Allen Ginsberg, that a lot of that is about um, almost quantity over quality. And so I can also do that, but uh, with the help of a good friend, you often then look and say, well, these eight lines are not any good, 
but maybe the 16 on either side of it could work and we could <laughs> do something with that. And so it's not always first thought, best thought. It's, it's kind of um, compressing the process so that you can do responsible work in an hour that when you started out might have taken you a week or more. And you have, so you have someone who's a regular uh, correspondent that you work with, that you share with? Okay. Often we work in person, but we also share a Dropbox folder. And this is an, uh, an editor of Absurd Publications in Davis, California. And uh, we will get together on Sundays with a bottle of wine and we'll start looking over some of the things that I've, I've written. Or uh, he'll send them back to me and about half the poem will be in red. And, and in the margin, the word omit. And so then you say, all right, what's left after we omit all these things that he says we should omit? And, and what's left, you know, uh, often works. They say cutting is the greatest test of a writer. Yeah. And so if, if you write a, a large enough draft the first time around and, uh, and then omit the lines that don't work, uh, sometimes what's left over will work. But but you'll notice juxtapositions that you wouldn't have noticed before because of how much you've, you've removed. It's like what Elmore Leonard says about his novels, that uh, as a writer, he tries to uh, not write the parts of his books that people generally skip when they're reading them. <laughs> and so as a result, his page turners are much more enjoyable. And that's something that I try to do by being kind to my, my readers and listeners by getting rid of the things that uh, that don't work bef- before uh, they're ever part of the process. Really boiling it down. Yeah. Well, maybe now's a good time to, to hear a poem. You've got some poems in front of you. We'd love to hear some, uh, maybe hear one and, uh, and go from there. Thank you. So I'm holding my hand um, a publication that came out this year called Where's Juki? It's poems and essays. And they're my poems and essays by my wife, Kate, who is a, um, an essayist and a blogger. And it's about uh, our son, Juki, who is now 13 and who has a rare syndrome called smith lindley opitz syndrome. And uh, we've often thought about the impressive people at the smith lindley opitz Foundation and how they create different sorts of fundraisers. And um, so many of them have, like, hockey-related fundraisers or balloon walks and, and other things that, you know, we really wouldn't stoop to doing. But we were thinking, you know what would be great to write a book? So we, we wrote this book. I collected the poems about my son, Juki. Kate collected some of the essays in her blog. And we've, um, we've put them together and set it up so that all the money that we've made from sales of this book, we've donated to the Smith Lemley Opitz Foundation. And as you can tell from the title, it's it's a pretty, it's a small group because there are so few people in the country who have this, uh, this rare syndrome. And many of them who do, do not survive uh, childbirth or the first couple years of, of life. And so uh, in, in order to encourage medical research into this foundation, excuse me, into this syndrome, uh, the foundation exists to uh, shunt some money that way. And it's a great organization as well because all of the administrators or volunteers so there's there's almost no money that doesn't go to exactly um, where it should the first poem in the book uh, titled where's juki which is also available on amazon is titled my entropy elephant and it's about my son juki my entropy elephant he is my entropy elephant my kangaroo of chaos the contents of all drawers will be revealed 
All shirts become t-shirts, all gowns strapless. If a tree falls in the forest, run to take the axe from his hands. If the water main has broken, then he has taken a break. Water seeks its own level, and this boy is a guide. Left-handed people are sinister and clumsy, they say, while our little lefty hoorays the lightning strike, the wind shear. We get no rest from this tempest, the nanny cries. It's not their stuff, so the neighbors just sit back and watch, thinking, with that arm, he could pitch for the giants. I never knew that pliers could be used in that way. We can find no matches for his socks, his shoes, his mittens. He plays with matches. How will we ever find him a match? Hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so uh, the book continues with Kate's essays and my poems, uh, often in a humorous way, but also in a poignant way. Uh, What are the challenges of raising a child with autism? Uh, What are the challenges of raising this particular kid with his early surgeries, his inquisitive nature, his loss of language, his joy of climbing, such as over fences when the police need to be called or up on the roof when the neighbors kindly stop by to inform us late at night that uh, one of our children has escaped. These are the topics that uh, make up the poems and essays in Where's Juki? I've really enjoyed the responses that I've had from people. Many non-poetry people have said, yeah, yeah, you know, I really enjoyed that book. The poems, they're pretty good. But the essays, oh. (laughs) Uh, Recently, someone told me uh, that Kate can write her butt off. He didn't use the word butt, but it was, it was so endearing, meaning that um, uh, often a narrative representing a mom's point of view of raising a kid with special needs uh, touches people in a much more um, visceral and effective way than uh, does a poem, where a, a poem, as you mentioned earlier, is elusive and elusive. You don't always know if you're a non-poetry person like, just exactly what is this about? Or why isn't he clearer with his words? But often that's the job of the poet, to allow the, the vagaries and possibilities of language to enter a particular text without always going for the simple meaning. And so I try to do these clever, interesting things with the poems, but, uh, but people who are strangers to poetry really love uh, the essays. And I'm sure that it's the essays that have really uh, made the book so successful. Well, I would say you're probably on the modest side, but uh, what was it like writing? Oh, we've done surveys. Okay. But, but <laughs> 37% for <prefer> poetry, yeah. <laughs> or 3%. Um, what was it like creating the book with Kate, uh, kind of deciding what goes in, and did you edit her work? Did she edit yours? Did you have conversations about order? And We did have conversations about order, also with the aforementioned editor. This is a, a book from Third Word Publications, and as a result, uh, I worked with Evan White, the, um, the head editor over at Absurd. But uh, I helped to give Kate my perspectives on some of her essays when she was publishing them. And then we went over them again with a fine-tooth comb. Sometimes the, the illusions, you wonder to what extent does this need to be glossed. So um, she has a, a wonderful essay in here. Uh, about taking a trip to Ikea 
with our three kids and different sort of uh, adventures that, uh, that that involved. And at one point, uh, there was a, a discussion of like removing a, a shoe and throwing it. And I forget where it is precisely, but it was something to the effect of Juki can throw his shoes with more accuracy than an Iraqi journalist. And so once upon a time, you might remember George Bush, he was giving a press conference and someone threw not one but two shoes at him, as we all wanted to do. And, uh, and so this was like highly topical when it was published as a, um, as a blog entry. But we had to wonder... You know, you can hear the silence in the crowd right now, other than Lawrence's um, knowing laugh, that, uh, that people might not get that, you know, two, five, ten years after the fact. So there was some of that editing. And then uh, sometimes Kate would listen to the, the poems and she'd say, what? So, you know, we'd, we'd look at that and, and see how they, they need to be uh, fixed. But uh, so a healthy amount of editing but always with the goal of, of keeping us a, a happy and forward-looking couple rather than picking too much on each other's word choices. I think one of the things that makes the book work so well is that the poems set up the essays and the essays set up the poems. So you have a long, reflective essay. It's very clear, and then you get a poem that emphasizes a moment or a, or a, you know, a certain aspect of your life with Juki and... Um, I think that they work together really well. It's like different kinds of music. It's counterpoint. I think that's right. One thing that I really enjoy about poetry is that it is interior. It's an interior monologue, usually, of some sort of character, sometimes a character close to the poet uh, or who resembles the, the poet, where you're saying, these are things that I know, these are things that I'm reflecting on, etc., etc. And as I was talking about with the Iraqi journalist, you don't often gloss or explain to yourself why it is you're thinking what it is that you're thinking because you know. But when you put it on the page and you put it in a book, uh, people will wonder, uh, what's going on here? Why is this next to this? What does this even mean? And so one thing that was helpful to me uh, with Kate's essays is that her writing style is very clear. And so that she would offer a kind of prosaic context around uh, poems that I had written, which did not seek to be always so logical or expository. This one piece I, I wanted to read, I came across this today, and, and it's a, I think it's a first-person piece. Well, it's first-person, I'm assuming, from Juki's standpoint, called Getting Attention, mm -hmm. and wondering maybe in a way if, it's a, if there's a little bit of Dr. Andy in there, too. But let me read Getting Attention, and maybe you can uh, comment on that. Getting Attention. I spun and spun like that because I wanted to get high and I whacked the world a thousand times with my plastic bat because I wanted to test the world's hollowness. And I also wanted to test my body's resilience and my relationship with pain and the limits of my extremities and to see if gravity cared that I had an umbrella in each hand or that I wore a cape. Gravity didn't care and the hollow bat didn't care, and I had trouble finding a person, even a parent who really cared, who understood and cared. But the pain I found was real, and if I concealed my wounds, they were mine only, and nobody asked about the blood, and nobody asked about the limp, and I went for almost a week before relenting, descending the stairs in tears, cradling my elbow, screaming that it was time, it was time, it was time for the ambulance. 
and that if somebody didn't hurry, I might just die. Very well read, Bob. I'm going to bring you to my readings from here on out. Thank you. One echoes of T.S. Eliot there. Hurry up, please. It's time. Yes, I'm sure. I feel like that I should quickly clarify that most of the things that happen in this book have not happened to Juki. For instance, uh, he hasn't jumped off any roofs with, um, with umbrellas. And when we see blood in the house, we investigate. So... Uh, <laughs> So, but, but I, what I was trying to get at is um, how brave children are, especially boys are, and how foolhardy they are. And in that way, uh, a kid who doesn't use words and a kid with autism might make some poor choices, but that often as parents, we have to remember they're not too different from the poor choices that we made when we were kids and that our other kids made. And so uh, in this instance, it's, it's meant to reflect a kind of psychological reality. What is it that we confess to our parents? And Juki has had much to confess, even though he's got no words. What, what sort of pain do we conceal? And what is the result of that? Um, what does it mean when we ask for help? I think one challenge for us uh, for Juki is that um, he doesn't speak with words and so we have to be very attentive parents because we know when he's in distress but we don't always know why. There's that famous scene in Terminator 2 when the, the Terminator and the mom and little John Connor are, uh, are escaping the T-1000, you know, made of silver, chasing after them in the police car, and he had tried to stab them a bunch of times. And then finally they get away, and Linda Connor, the mom, reaches back to check on John Connor, and he thinks she's coming in for a hug, but really it's a cavity, not a cavity check, a body check to make sure that there are no stab wounds on him, that she wasn't coming in for a hug, but rather just to um, see if he was bleeding anywhere because of the, the conflict that they had just survived. And often we have to be that way with Juki because he can't tell us if he's hurt, right? So we've got to say, how you doing? Are you limping? Do I see any blood? Are you scratched up anywhere? Because he, he can't tell us, you know, and he's pretty uh, taciturn sometimes. So it's, it's a little bit like that. What, what are the fears and concerns that we have as parents? And how can we, with poetry in particular, uh, especially when say, people from Child Protective Services are not reading your poems. How can you explore these different topics that, uh, that explore the fears that all of us have as, as parents, especially parents of, like, nutty kids who do crazy things? Well, when you talk about kind of the power of poetry to, to heal or to, to help us share things that are difficult for us, and you've worked with so many people, you've, you know, you've put on readings and you've done interviews... What are some, some experiences that you've had where you just kind of felt like, wow, that was great, or you've seen people light up? I mean, it, it may happen you know, every Wednesday night, but what are some times, or, or even in your own life as a, you know, a reader or, or a student or a teacher, where you, where you get that sense of, wow, poetry really connected with somebody, or somebody got excited and it was a good thing? I think many of those times happen first when we're young, and most impressionable. I think that um, since I've earned my PhD and since I've been in this poetry business for years, uh, sometimes I'll look at a, a poem on the page or I'll hear it read and I'll immediately go to the analytic part of me. And I'll say, oh, that was quite good. 
or that was clever. What a well-chosen word that was. But I think that when I was less wise when it comes to poetry, I think poetry had a greater effect on me. So I think, for instance, of an undergraduate during my senior year in college, Robert Pinsky, later the Poet Laureate of the United States, uh, was my professor. He had come out with a new book called The Want Bone and was giving readings around Boston. And a lot of us would just follow him from reading to reading. That was helpful to me because I, I noticed that you could tell the same sort of jokes to different audiences, you know, over and over again. And as, as you know pretty well, Bob, I certainly do that. But what, um, what impressed me the most about Robert Pinsky's poetry is the extent to which he was doing fascinating things with the language. But with that book and with his next book, Jersey Rain, he would also talk about his uh, parents or his mom or his grandparents. And growing up in New Jersey, people who were not so educated but who loved jazz and the kind of interior tumult he felt if one of them became hurt or angry or if someone was uh, losing her capacity to parent well or whatever the case may be. And that to me was really... Uh, poignant, as well as clever and uh, well done, well written. So I'd say that was an example. And then I loved, you mentioned T.S. Eliot before, I loved uh, T.S. Eliot as an undergrad. I went to London primarily to to meet my my wife for the first time, but also to study Eliot in the city that Eliot had uh, adopted. I went to school at Boston University, and so I walked the streets of Cambridge, Massachusetts, looking to see where Eliot had written the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But then I went to London and walked the streets where he wrote The Wasteland. And, and that really uh, resonated with me and reading those poems over and over again and seeing what Eliot did with the language, with rhythms, with tempos, that had a, ba- a big effect on me as a, um, as a young poet. It's always exciting, too, when, you, when you're young and all of a sudden you realize there's this whole world of poets out there. I, I remember one class where we read Eliot and William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens, and it was the first time. And each language was like a whole new language. Right. And I would get excited, and I would come home, and I would tell Joyce, you know, well, there's this poet. This is like the best poet ever, right? And then the next week, oh, you're not going to believe this, right? And so, I mean, for me, I, I remember that same thing, just being just kind of opened out into this new world every time. So I guess so so maybe we need to try and recover that, right? That innocence, that um, sense of finding something new, breaking into new territory. One way I think that you all are doing that here in the city of Sacramento, which is great, is this, uh, I think it's a third Thursday noon event over at the public library, which I've been able to attend because I'm often in, in class or in a meeting at that time. But where you get people together and you read, as you were just suggesting about uh, William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens, you read favorite poems. Like you say, here's a poem that's meant a lot to me. And let's just share it and and talk it through. And that's something else that I did as an undergrad. We were all kind of editors. We'd go off to these poetry classes, we'd discover things, and we'd come back and we'd read them to one another the way that that you do well with your uh, guitar or your banjo. And then you say, like, here's something. Listen to this new lick that I've just, you know, written or discovered. Or look, I figured out how to play this song. And when you read a poem to someone, it's a similar kind of uh, excitement, especially if you've got a receptive audience. And you, if you've got people who, kind of like with banjo music, who are amenable to listening, because you know not everyone is. 
<laughs> well, if, if poetry is obscure, then banjo is like off the charts obscure. Right, very esoteric. So maybe we could hear another poem kind of in light sure. of that. Yeah. All right, well, let me uh, read some new work. I've, um, I think the other thing that's happened to me, which I've enjoyed, is that I feel obligated to write poems as poet laureate. And it's not that individual people are clamoring for these poems. It's rather that I feel an obligation to produce, right? What is, um, what is a poet if not someone who's writing poetry all the time? And so uh, as poet laureate, I've been much more productive than usual. And I think it also helps that um, I know I'll have at least one reader who will, you know, take out two thirds, maybe three quarters of the poem and, and let me know what is worth saving, if anything. And so I've been, uh, I've been writing lots of poems, and, and we can talk more about the process in a minute. But a new favorite is one that I, I wrote a couple weeks ago called Dharma Bug. We talked about uh, Jack Kerouac, who wrote famously a book called Dharma Bums, partly about Gary Snyder, who's a, a professor that I got to know uh, when he taught at UC Davis. So this one is called Dharma Bug, and it starts with a quotation by the current Dalai Lama who said, quote, If you think you are too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. Dharma Bug. The freezer door shut with such force that you might have been sucked right out. But no, your sucking days are over. You are frozen and finally idle, like mad Jack Torrance. Mosquito... Even the Buddhists will exterminate you, casually, with a device or a cloth or even a thumb. A man in robes might close your compound and purple eyes, affixing you with a halo of stolen blood, imagining karma not to apply. The radically empathic have claimed no place for you at our table, or in their version of heaven. Crystals on the wings, you freeze alone. Perhaps the Dalai Lama himself smiles when he helps you spill what has been sucked, an evacuation that leaves you weightless. You have achieved emptiness. The midge has been nudged. Thank you. We're listening to Andy Jones here uh, at Coffee and Poets, which is produced by Lawrence Dinkins here at Naked Lounge at 11th and H in Sacramento. It's the equinox today. So no redeeming qualities for the mosquito. Even the Buddhists say, sorry, buddy. That's what I imagine. (laughs) There's a story of uh, Tolstoy, who was famously a, a vegetarian and recognized the validity of every creature's life. Uh, and, and wrote about this famously. So uh, a pacifist, vegetarian, etc. And he had all these followers. And, and at one point, uh, he had just finished giving a talk at this compound where he and his followers lived. And he sat down and he smacked a mosquito on his arm, you know, killing it instantly. And, uh, and some, of his out, uh, some of his followers were outraged. Um, and they said, oh my gosh, you shouldn't do that because our teachings show. But they were his teaching, right? And so he, uh, they were in this tricky situation. How do you chastise your spiritual leader for acting in a way contrary to this, the spiritual teachings of, of that leader? So uh, I, I wonder what the Dalai Lama does when confronted with uh, mosquitoes. But I would think that um, he would want to dispatch them. Okay. He, even he though, still eats kale, right? I, I mean, yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, when you think about reincarnation, you wonder how, how bad someone was to be reincarnated as the mosquito who is summer, summarily uh, or immediately uh, exterminated by the Dalai Lama. So it's like the seventh ring or the eighth ring of Dante's hell, maybe? You, you're a mosquito, and then after that, who knows, right? It's, it's way down there at the bottom. Yeah. In fact, most readers of Dante don't even get to the circle of hell that we're talking about. <laughs> they, they just go right for the cliff notes. Yeah. So, um, so you mentioned a little bit about your process. So you're, it sounds like you're writing more. So having become Poet Laureate, it's just kind of you feel like, wow, I got to write, right? The, my, yeah. my constituents, what's the term? The peccadillo of constituencies? Right. Um, your constituents, you, you kind of sense that they're expecting production. So that, that must be exciting to be writing. It is, but I must say a lot of it's um, interior because um, uh, nobody's demanding anything from me. People are so appreciative of what I already do for poets, for poetry, that if I, if I just uh, cruised on my laurels of what I've been doing for the last 10 years, they'd be happy. So a lot of this is internal, right? And I think that's often how it should be for, for writers. And that, that poets need to stop waiting for uh, inspiration and say, well, I'm a poet. I'm going to write something now. And often it'll be, I've just put the three kids to bed. And I have like an hour. What, what am I going to do? As a poet laureate, what am I going to do with this hour? My family has grown tired, actually, of me mentioning so often that I am poet laureate. So, so this is like, it's an interior thing, right? Because who, who am I kidding? The pay is the same whether I write a poem, you know, five times a week or never again. Well, the per word value goes down. The more you write, the less the, each word is worth. Well, when you're not getting paid at all, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I think we all know what each of those words is worth. So, um, but I, I feel that I must. But mentioning uh, Wordsworth before, he says that, that poetry is the result of uh, emotions that you recollect in tranquility. Now, my concern is that I never quite get to the tranquility, right? So... Uh, I teach at UC Davis. I'm an um, academic director at our academic technology services. I host a radio show, the poetry series, a, a number of other things. I'm the chair of the Cultural Action Committee of the City of Davis. Uh, I have three kids and, uh, and a wife who I'm very uh, fond of and attentive to. And so there's not enough time to, to like be reflective. So, so this is what I do now. I say, all right, who's a poet who, um, who people are respecting or thinking is any good? I'll, um, I'll read around and I'll find this person or that person. And I'll say, all right, here's a poet. Let me find 20 poems by this person. And I'll cut and paste them into a big document. And I'll leave that there. And then I copy the whole document into a new one. And I go over, and this is where the technology portion of poetry and technology comes together. And in Microsoft Word, you go over to table and you pull down table and you hit sort. And I say sort by paragraph ascending. And what it does is it takes those, let's say, 2,000 lines of poetry and it puts them all in alphabetical order. And so then I say, all right, uh, what, what do I have here? Well, it's just a jumble. You know, it's, it's, it's a jumble of a really smart, creative person. And, and I often try to think of poets who who people respect, but whose work I don't really know, so that I don't end up writing like an imitation of what they might write. And then I say, all right, somewhere in these first 20 lines, you know, that start with A and, A and, and, you know, all the A lines, I say, what, what strikes me here? 
what, what do I see here that reminds me of something else? And then I'll say, oh, this does. And so I'll, I'll copy and paste the line, and I'll say, all right, well, of course, this reminds me of you know, this, that, and the other. Chaucer said that the tongue returns to the sore tooth, right? <laughs> so you've got a sore tooth, and your tongue keeps coming back to it, whether you want it to or not. And I think as poets, there are certain concerns that, uh, that come up that we're concerned about. So I, I've seen in your uh, poetry, Bob, uh, I see music's important to you, nostalgia is often important to you. Uh, baseball and the Giants, these are topics that are important to you. And I bet there are times when you try to start writing a poem about something else and you'll actually end up coming back to one of these topics. Right. And so what I do is I try to remove the, in, the intentionality. One thing I learned from Derek Walcott, uh, the great Afro-Caribbean poet and later um, Nobel Prize winner, when I was at Boston University, is that when you set out to write a poem on a particular topic with a particular purpose, that will be a bad poem. And why is that? Because the work that we do as poets, it is, um, it is largely associative and it's emotional. And we would contrast that with the work of an essayist, which uh, seeks to persuade someone of a particular opinion or to make an argument using facts and, and thereby to uh, communicate meaning. But one of the reasons why we should scoff at the person who says, I don't know what this poem means, is that poems don't seek to mean, per se, right? Rather, an essay seeks to mean, if you want to mean something, if you want to communicate meaning, go to the essay and, and write a well-organized essay. But a, a poet, delightfully, from my perspective, is liberated from logic, purpose, argument. Um, you, you do need some evidence. We think of it as, uh, as images. Uh, and with that... What we have instead are associations and emotions and things that we care about. And as someone who has been taught by my son, Juki, how to live in the moment, I just say, all right, here's a sea of lines. What occurs to me when I see this? And I, I don't have that time to reflect, but I end up writing about some of the things that I, I care about. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you, if you cut out the parts that don't work, as we were talking about before, and then the other thing I do is I try to remove any explicit evidence from the lines that I stole to start this process, right? So there's a, a line there, and if in the first draft it, it quotes it word for word to get me started, then I say, well, um, how can I cut that? What if I just cut it all, all the way? Does, the, does this stanza still work? Or if it doesn't, what am I changing so that there are no identifiable remnants of, of the original? So you've kind of randomized this process of getting into a poem. You've created right. by, by by finding poets uh, that you like their work. You reshuffle the deck, yeah, and then it's your tarot cards that you go from there, and then you take out anything that would tie it back. Exactly. That what what we need. If if you're as busy as I am, and you spend as much time, like I'm in a thinking job, right? So some of us we we might be doing jobs that are, are thoughtless. I talked to a guy today who said that um, when he graduated from UC Davis, he moved from uh, working in the catering division to helping to run the catering division. But he doesn't think so much about the work. He's just processing paperwork or helping to move boxes of food around or whatever it is he does. So he has time to reflect and basically to write poems while he's doing that. I don't have time to do that. I've got to, um, when I'm teaching a class, I've got to be present and doing the thing that I'm doing. And so it's mindful work rather than mindless. But the disadvantage there is that you don't have time to have poems occur to you all day. You don't have time to reflect and, right. and relax like Wordsworth says. Exactly. And so, and 
And there are also class-based issues here as well. So um, Wordsworth was wealthy enough and also had uh, the help, and we should add the diaries of his sister Dorothy, that he would read over her diaries. And, and scholars know now that he was pulling lines wholesale from his sister's diaries and just putting them right in his poetry. He didn't even try to reshuffle or, or hide the way that I do. And so... <laughs> and so um, but... But not all of us have, like, Dorothy Wordsworth to, um, to provide us that time to, like, go do this reflective work. And so I have to hit the ground running. And I think one of the ways that I do that is I shoot right out of the, the cannon provided by these other poets and say, all right, what do we have here? Let, let's get right to work. I've got an hour, and, and I've got to be productive today. I have responsibility to myself and my editor. Let, let's make something. Let's move beyond responsibility for a second. Does it make you feel good when you write a poem that, that works? Yeah, Some way. it happens infrequently, but I, I, I like, like uh, yesterday, for instance, I wrote two poems, and I was just about to go to sleep, but I don't know if this happens to you. You, you read enough poetry, and then uh, your thoughts that rush through your head, some of them come out as lines, or like as, as insights, or isn't it interesting that this is like that? And when it's late at night, we say, oh... I'm just exhausted. I'm just going to go to bed. I've, I've written a lot of my best poems, I think, late at night. And I think it's true because of something that comedian Stephen Wright says. And that is, starting around midnight or 1 a.m., I start dreaming, whether I'm asleep or not. And what he means by that is that um, the, the parts of our heads that help us function and be logical, they've gone to sleep. And so then the poet's mind can come out and start to make these wild associations. So yesterday, before going to bed, I just um, recited a poem into my iPhone, and then I finished writing it this morning. And I'll find out if it's not half bad or if it, if it really is half bad. But, um, but that is satisfying to come up with, you know, while you're brushing your teeth, like an idea for a poem. And then five minutes later, the whole rough draft is, um, is spoken into your uh, tape recorder or equivalent thereof with an iPad app. And then the next morning it's written and in your editor's inbox. So you do a lot of that with the uh, oral I'm, I'm doing generation. more of that now because, again, of uh, this need to write more as a poet laureate. Normally I just go to sleep. Okay. You know? <laughs> sleep is but, good too. Yeah. yeah. But I, I feel like I... Can I um, take your pulse? Are you all right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm more than all right. And the other thing that's helping, frankly, is uh, juicing. I'm drinking some, uh, some naked 100% juice smoothie right now. This is a, a blue machine, quite tasty. So we juice, when I say we, I juice lots of like um, kale and fruit and bananas at the, at the house and throw in some protein powder. And uh, so I'm doing that, and then I'm doing lots of exercise these days. So I feel like I'm, I'm firing on all cylinders. Okay, that's it's great. Exciting. Yeah. Um, a question occurred to me when you were talking about um, going back and looking at poets that you're interested in. Are there any new poets or anybody that you've discovered in the last year that you feel like you'd want to share? You know, somebody, maybe a couple of names that are just interesting poets that you want to not emulate, but they inspire you? Right. So one poet who's writing today who I like very much is Frank Bedard. He's a professor at Wellesley, and he's won some, some big prizes. He's considered a senior poet now. And he does fascinating things with dramatic monologues, often representing um, unstable characters in ways that I really respect and have learned a, a lot from. There's a, a poet with an unusual name who teaches up at CSU Chico and, um, and who you might have to help you remember who he is. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's right at the Poetry Center. Um, Chico. 
All right, so I'm that you know that's embarrassing, especially okay. in a before uh, in a live audience. That's okay. Yeah, with an interview, but I'm going to. Um, so uh, he's written a book recently that um, that I just loved and that that does this for me. Um, and what is it about his work? Uh, again, representing characters in odd situations, and then the. Um, the musicality of the language. A poet whose um, language is very different from mine, named Joe Mills, is a personal friend, and he writes accessible poems that work well with mixed audiences. And so I've been I've been thinking about should I be doing more of that? And part of that involves um, mixed audiences, meaning people who don't go to poetry readings. Okay. Yeah. There and are there are people who don't go to poetry readings. It's hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> One of my jobs as poet laureate is to get like to get in front of more of those people. And I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm, I'm still working on that. That, that brings me to uh, my next question, sure. which is not what you plan to do as Poet Laureate of Davis, but in a perfect world, yeah. with all the time and all the resources and money and all, the, all your ideas could come true, right? I could start singing here, but I forget sure. the melody. What would you do as Poet Laureate for Davis or for your community as a whole? So um, one thing I would do is something that I could do when I was at a, a previous location, and that is um, pay poets to read and pay them to come to Davis and give those readings. That helps to uh, attract a, um, a higher quality in, of poet and also a, a more enthusiastic poet. So that would be something um, that would be important to me. If I had all the money and resources, I would um, amp up the publicity element of this. I think a lot of people are um, less resistant to poetry than what we joke about, but they, they haven't come to their first reading yet. And so to think about how could publicity uh, get more people uh, into that room. Right now, as you know, we have poetry readings at the John Atsoulis Gallery, which is a terrific place. Davis also needs... Something that, um, I don't know if, if Sacramento has it either, but uh, Cesar Chavez Park might be a close approximation. And that is an outdoor arena for poetry, theater, uh, acoustic music, etc. A Greek theater sort of structure. And I'd like to see such a thing uh, built in the city of Davis. We were looking for a while at the north end of Central Park where our famous farmer's market takes place. But money was invested instead in a, an accessible playground, which has been very popular. And so I think that that was a, a good investment. But somewhere in Davis, if we really want to be proponents of the arts, we need uh, a big place where people can come together and perform. So, uh, so those would be um, some of my dreams. I'd say also, if I had world enough in time, I would want a yearly anthology of Davis poets and, and people who come to Davis and creating an anthology of poems written by poets who have uh, been a part of the Poetry Night reading series would be uh, another dream of mine. Like, that's something that I actually plan to complete over the next oh, two years. okay, great. So I'll, I'll be reaching out to, to you and to Lawrence and to Evan and to others here, perhaps, asking you if you'd be willing to uh, submit a poem and, uh, and be paid in a, um, in a copy of the anthology. That's often how we're used to being paid as poets, if at yeah. all, right? Yeah. You just get a copy of something. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, paying poets because the, the original, the reason that they founded the Sacramento Poetry Center in 1979 was get money for poets. Yeah. That was the, the mantra, and it lasted for about a year. <laughs> and then they said, well, we'll just do readings and we'll, we'll do stuff for free instead. Right. So, and that's been good, but it's not as good. It would be nice to be able to, you know, to work with lots of 
agencies, you know, NGOs and governments and poets and writers and put something together that was, was better, was more better compensation. Absolutely. I mean, something that I feel as the owner of a small business is that we, we value what we pay for, right? And so uh, poets after a while feel, well, I'm a poet. I'm used to doing my work for free. Poetry is kind of a side gig, a silly thing, a distraction. And I think that least of all, do we need poets to believe that? I mean, it's, it's bad enough when the arts are not appreciated by our, our politicians and business people and, and civic and municipal leaders when they're deciding what, what sort of uh, city or country do I want to live in and how will my investments reflect those priorities. So we certainly need poets and other sorts of artists to be paid to be appreciated and not just appreciated like, oh, he's a good selfless guy. Thank you for giving your work to me for free over and over and over again. I appreciate that. I'm not going to pay for it, but I do appreciate it. And and there's all, you know, there are very few other sorts of tradespeople in this country for whom that would work. But um, I think poets are are used to being, that if they depend only on their poetry, they're used to being poor. It said that Robert Frost was the last poet who made enough money from just poetry sales to pay a mortgage. And um, and I don't know if that's still true. Now we have lyricists and many of them do quite well. But I would like to see a greater investment uh, in poets and other sorts of artists in our society. That kind of comes back to Dana Joya's book too. Uh, can Poetry Matter? Can Poetry Matter, yeah. And, and you and I would argue that it can and that it does. Right. But in the maybe in the greater context, uh, we're still we're kind of struggling. How you know how much of an impact does it make? And we see one person at a time, a few people at a time. And I guess that's kind of what we take our pleasure in and get excited about. And we need to think too about what is the larger system of values that that we live in and that we would hope to continue and pass along. I read a, a quotation yesterday that said something to the effect of, some people are so poor, all they have is money. And so the thinking there is, poetry is important because of the way that it feeds our souls that stand outside of uh, exchanges of goods and services. And so people who turn to poetry for that are analogous to people who turn to uh, meditation or to religion or to reading for its own sake or to art galleries. And, and these people have much richer lives than the rich do. And, and, and we should envy those people. I mean, in the end, we know that, that time is worth more than money. And so if you spend all your time steeped in the arts or playing with language in ways that that brings you pleasure and, and on occasion other people, that that, um, that provides a significant amount of, of richness to our lives that we should all be so lucky to take advantage of. Well, maybe uh, on that note, maybe another poem would, would be appropriate, to maybe something that's, that has that playfulness in language that uh, we value so much. All right. So uh, here's a poem that I've uh, written recently. Actually, I'm going to read this one um, about Allen Ginsberg. And when you talk about playfulness of language, it's interesting how a particular word, when repeated, can have changed meanings. You mentioned the beats earlier and Allen Ginsberg. He's Um, along with Jack Kerouac, the most famous example of that largely San Francisco-based group of authors. This is a poem uh, about Allen Ginsberg, but especially about Henry Kissinger, who some of our listeners may not know was uh, the national security advisor under Nixon and then I think Secretary of State under Ford during the time of the Vietnam War. 
and was um, and was reviled by many on the left because of the ways that he promulgated uh, warfare uh, during that time of great tumult of the late 60s and early 70s in particular. So the you of the title of this poem, You and Allen Ginsberg, is Henry Kissinger. You and Allen Ginsberg. You are 1971 Henry Kissinger, and ordinance springs from your words. Ginsburg is on the phone, and you take the call. Bearded, balding, peripatetic, the nasal lightning bard is shushing the anti-war hipsters around him, for you have taken his call. You have taken a call from Allen Ginsburg. You hear his miniature Nepalese symbols punctuate his requests for a meeting. Quote, perhaps you don't know how to get out of the war, Ginsburg offers. A bomb drops. You agree to the meeting. Much to, taught, <clears throat> much to be taught, much to learn. Then Ginsburg ups the ante, for the man only understands yes and again yes. Quote, it would be more useful if we could do it naked on television, he says. After a pause, you laugh. You laugh and laugh. Your laughter is unrestrained, impolitic. And amid the laughter, you review a thousand images, as if you were being briefed. Of course, you have already seen Ginsburg naked, and you have seen yourself naked. You can imagine the bright studio lights, the Naugahyde chairs provided by CBS. You think of Anne, your ex-wife, married at 26. She was often glorious naked. You are single now, so there have been women since, many of them naked. You have seen them in various poses and have stared long at their naked parts. You take a moment to imagine the president naked. You imagine Brent Scowcroft naked. You remember the foreign girl fleeing from you, screaming towards the camera, former clothes and now back burned by napalm, incomprehensible words garbled in Vietnamese or Cambodian, slender, uncountried, frozen in mid-scream, and naked. Naked and naked and even more naked. Wow. That took a little, uh, a little turn there. Yes. From the, from the mind of Henry Kissinger to the darker side of the mind of Henry Kissinger. Well, it makes you think that, and this is something I appreciate about poetry, is that poetry is an exercise in empathy. And one thing that I try to do is explore characters who are not myself. And so Dr. Andy Jones of Davis, California, and Henry Kissinger are probably polar opposites in a great number of ways. And so it made me think this poetic process, how could I exercise or explore empathy even with this man? And one of the ways that... Uh, I think that I was forced to do that is to dignify a kind of realization of Kissinger's of, um, of what he has done, of, um, of how that turn in, uh, as you call it, towards a, a new kind of nakedness uh, represents his own naked realization of, of what this conflict has done to so many people. We would hope that more of our leaders would have realizations such as that. And, and, and the language becomes Ginsbergian, too, as you get into that, that naked realization. It becomes like Ginsberg, so it's almost like his mind shifts a little bit into Ginsberg's mind. Too. Right. With the challenge of seeing how many words you can fit into the line before you take that next breath. <laughs> well, it, it left us breathless. 
the explore, exploring empathy here today with Dr. Andy Jones at Coffee and Poets. I think that's about all we have time for, Andy. Any any final thoughts? I, I had a good time. Oh, I did too. Well, let me just plug a few things. I'd like to remind listeners that my radio show, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, can be heard every Wednesday at 5 California time on radio station KDVS, which you can find at kdvs.org. And if you're in the greater Sacramento Valley, I hope you will stop by the John Itzulis Gallery at 521 First Street in Davis on the first or third Thursday of the month for a featured poet that starts at 8 o'clock. There's an open mic at 9 and an after party. Party at 10. Details on that can be found at poetryindavis.com. Thank you again, Andy, and thank you to our producer, Lawrence Dinkins, and to the Naked Lounge here at 11th and H. Uh, this is Bob Stanley for Coffee and Poets. We are signing off. <laughs> <laughs>